Are we rolling? Yes. We are rolling. Hello and welcome to Games with Garfield. I'm your host, Jessica Price, and I am here with Scaff Elias. Hello. And Richard Garfield. Hi. So it's been forever since we've done a podcast, and we apologize for that, but some exciting stuff has been going on. Um, Richard, what have you been up to? Oh, uh... (laughs) (laughs) Very exciting, so you can see why we've been unable to manage a podcast. Uh, I've been working a lot on the expansion for uh, King of Tokyo. It was far more work than I expected. Uh, I've been working to try to get out uh, a game which was called Dwarven Empires, which was sitting with Z-Man for over two years. They said they were going to publish it, but they sent it back. Um, So I've sent it to Yellow. And uh, I've uh, been looking at uh, another one of uh, my games, Greedy Greedy Goblins, which uh, I'm uh, trying to get uh, somebody to look at and... uh, and uh, then experimenting around with a lot of uh, sort of uh, deck-building game concepts and other board games that uh, sort of interest me. Well, so we can't play Gritty Gritty Goblins yet or um, the one that was with Seaman, but obviously King of Tokyo is out. However, I've been hearing from a lot of people that they are trying to get it and can't seem to find it in the U.S. What's going on? Sold out everywhere. Really? Well, many places. So if I want to play King of Tokyo, I have to find a friend who has it, or is there somewhere online that I can order it from out of the country? Or uh, I'm, I think you probably your best bet is a friend. Uh, I don't know what where it's available outside of the country or what language it would be in if you did. But Yellow has a website that you could go to, and, and the URL is, and you could ask them, write them, complain. My guess is that there'll be more in the U.S. soon, but... I don't know. I've been certainly wrong about scheduling things way more often than I've been right. So um, the expansion, do you know when it comes out? Or The expansion uh, is set to come out at Gen Con. Um, and, uh, and when is Gen Con? Gen Con is middle of August. So um, if you haven't played King of Tokyo yet, do you think you'll have a chance to play it? Will it be back in stock before Gen Con? Uh, I, I believe... It should be available soon, but I don't know. Uh, I'm waiting to hear from Yellow to see uh, see when they think it's going to be in the States again. So we've talked about King of Tokyo before. What does the expansion add? Right now, it's a very tight expansion. It adds one thing, but we've talked about adding all sorts of things. Uh, the one thing which was coming up again and again with uh, among among the players, the thing they expected and the thing which I decided was a mandate was to make it so that the monsters in King of Tokyo had different uh, different powers. It did seem like uh, selecting a monster was based more on what you liked aesthetically than... Sure. In, in the base set, uh, selecting Cyber Bunny versus Alienoid is like selecting Yellow versus Pink. And I think I think... The, one of the reasons why people look for that is because the monsters were the 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 artist uh, did the monsters with with such flair that they had so much personality that people were looking for that. Yeah, it almost seemed strange that they all played the same. So, what are we going to see personality-wise in the expansion? The journey of adding personality to the monsters is a, is a long one that's hard to hard to sum up concisely. Uh, but it actually taught me a lot about uh, making expansions. 
Um, I'm, I'm used to making expansions for games where the expansions are pretty easy to make. Uh, say, Robo Rally, you come up with a bunch of new uh, option cards and a new boards and you're done. Uh, and with Magic, you just come out with a whole bunch of new cards. Um, the cards for King of Tokyo, coming up with new cards, that was easy, but it, do- it doesn't feel like a complete expansion because the cards are not... Uh, you know, they're, they are not half the game. Um, they are, they are, you know, 25% of the game or something like that. Um, and so it feels kind of flat just to do new cards. It's easy, but, uh, but, uh, feels kind of empty. Did you consider things like adding more characters or? We, we did. And in fact, I've designed other characters, but adding other characters without actually having the mechanics for making those characters different is, is, is not going to excite people. Uh, um, right now, uh, and, 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 uh, so, so my, my primary question was, the, the primary question I had was how to add personality to the monsters, uh, and, and not make the game worse. And it, it turned out to be much, much easier than I thought to make the game worse. And in fact, it, it kind of makes me look back over, there was a lot of times when expansions came out for popular games and they came out not, you know, being done by a fan group or not being done by the author, but being endorsed by somebody else. And it kind of makes me, uh, uh, wonder about, you know, I want to go back and sort of look what was done there because if they were facing a sort of similar problem, um, I could, I could see, I could, I, I, I think I could now appreciate it a little more. So the basic issue I was dealing with was that, uh, in, in King of Tokyo, there are several strategies you can follow and you can adapt your strategy based on, uh, uh, on how, how you roll and what your opponents are doing. Uh, so your basic strategies are you can go for victory points, you can, uh, go, you can try to attack people, or you can get lots of money and buy lots of cards. And, uh, and, and those sort of form, form the three different, uh, 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 major directions you can go. And some people had preferences, but one of the things that was nice is you sit down at the game, you can go any of those directions, and you can adapt. If you happen to roll well in one way, you could switch paths. But when you started adding uh, personalities to the monsters, they're going to be, I mean, then they have to be better or worse at some of these things, otherwise they don't really have personalities. And so once you have that dimension, then people feel probably at least partially correctly, pushed in a particular direction. And so suddenly you're sitting down to a game where now if I'm playing Mecha Dragon, I am in an attack game. And if I try to do some other strategy, it's... Uh, it's, it's, it's not gonna feel as good, it's not gonna be as effective, it's gonna feel like I'm, I'm wasting my time. And so now you've got a game where everybody sits down and they got one strategy they can follow. It's a worse game. So, do you think that the problem was that you were preventing uh, people from fluidly changing strategies? Well, in the original game, you you could do one of two ways. You could have this strategy in your head that you were going to play no matter what, which was a mistake, but still it suited people's personality. In the In the new version, they would not be able to do that unless they happened to get the monster that matched their personal desire, and maybe there's more than one person that wants to play attack. Well, happened, one attack you monster. can choose the monster and, you play, correct? Well, but if there's, like I just said, if there's more than one person there that wants to play that strategy, then there are monsters that match with that strategy. You have a problem. And then the other thing, too, is if you were playing sort of intelligently, you kind of let the dice and the other players, what they were doing, dictate your strategy. Uh, and then, of course, you wouldn't as easily be able to do that uh, so both both of those things, either way, people were playing beforehand, kind of would necessarily not work with giving the monsters personalities. Is it necessarily such a bad thing in King of Tokyo if people choose their strategy early, though? 
Because, I mean, there are a lot of games, like if you're playing something like Dominion, right, you can change your strategy, but in general you're better off if you kind of have an idea of what you're doing and select your cards accordingly. Or something like Race for the Galaxy, if, simply because the games aren't that long, you don't have a whole lot of time to change strategy and be effective. And King of Tokyo doesn't seem that long. No, it's it's, it's not long, uh, but uh, but but uh, as Scott said, there's there's well there's there's two issues with with sort of forcing people up front to choose the strategies. One is if they've got the wrong if 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 they want to play an attack strategy and 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 they get the kraken uh or or they get uh, uh cyber bunny uh and and that isn't doesn't doesn't match their 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 strategy then then they're before they could have done their attack strategy regardless and now they feel like they're doing it uh, uh with a hand tied behind their back um so and then and then for the for the player who uh um, is sort of more more playing the game at at, at 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 a fluid level where they're adapting to the roles and the other players. That's it's not removed, but it it feels worse because it feels like every time you switch your strategy to something which isn't uh, um, syn- synergistic with your character, that uh, so it, it's one of the charms of the game as it stands. And so, you, sure, you can play Dominion, and there's a lot going on with Dominion. One of the things that's not going on with Dominion is <laughs> changing your strategy halfway right. through, and uh, and and so it's got a lot else going for it. Th- this game, one of the one of the most interesting parts about it was having to you know float and uh, and change and decide based upon what you saw and what you rolled. So how did you solve the problem? So uh, uh, before getting to how I solved it, there's also one other issue which uh, which uh, was brought up by uh, my playtesters many times, which was that if you have rules associated with your character, then it front loads the difficulty into the game, that is, the complexity in the game. Uh, suddenly we're sitting around the table and there's a whole bunch of extra information because all the characters are different. Whereas in, um, I, I tend to prefer games that begin out simpler and build in complexity. Uh, it's a, uh, an arc, for instance, that I like in Magic. You begin out with nothing in play, and the third turn you've got a few things in play, and the seventh turn you've got a bunch of things in play, and Typically, by the tenth or twelfth turn, you've got a lot of stuff in play. Um, and so here, if you begin out with Gigazor and he's got all these powers, well, then everybody is, uh, you know, uh, trying to take in all this stuff to the game state, which is there from the from the get go. So it makes the game sort of start slower. Was that something that you had thought about, or did the beta testers actually bring it to your attention? Um, it's something in games that I've definitely I've definitely thought about the game arc before. It's something which I I, uh, uh, I think a lot about in games, but uh, but hadn't really considered. Uh, uh, I hadn't really considered how the expansion was going to affect that. That this prerequisite of mine, um, uh, that monsters have personalities, uh, was going to, in its most natural answer, hurt the game arc. So how did you solve the problem? After many hours, <laughs> the number of different solutions that I tried, uh, and, and I think I think actually, um, 
now that I've stated the problems up front, right, like it took me a long time to identify those as being problems. Uh, but now that I've stated those up front, I think I probably would have been able to solve it much faster. But as it was, I was sort of groping around and dealing with problems and not sort of tying together the feedback that I'd gotten. Right, a lot of times framing the question is the biggest part of solving the problem. Yeah, yeah that's that. And for me, that certainly turned out to be the case here. And so we worked our way through uh, all, all sorts of different uh, uh, different prototypes until I came up with uh, this this concept of beginning out with uh, a bunch of face-down cards, that is, that's the cards that weren't in play, and then certain events in the game would allow you to reveal them. Okay, and so what what this means is 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 you've got a Gigazor deck and I've got a Cyber Bunny deck, and as we as we uh, play the game, I might reveal more and more Cyber Bunny cards, and you might reveal more and more Gigazor cards, which defines the personality. This does a couple things. Uh, first of all, as far as the complexity arc goes, um, it means that we all beginning out. Technically, I should know what everybody's deck is, but it's uh, at the beginning of the game. There's nothing. There's no extra powers in play. If I don't want to know them, I don't have to. I don't have to. Uh, there's not a sort of a chart of complicated stuff for me to look at. Um, and then as the game develops, uh, these cards are revealed, which adds complexity. So the arc problem is fixed by this solution. Um, now the the problem with forcing people down a particular strategic road, it's uh, you are definitely more channeled in this towards. A particular path, but uh, but but since my goal was to make it that um, you don't reveal all your cards, some people will reveal very few, some people will reveal a lot of them. Um, if you're in some games, you won't be guided by this deck much, which gives you a lot of flexibility. And if you're in other games, you will be guided by it a lot because it'll be revealed. So it it sort of uh, naturally leaves in some adaptability. So as far as starting with cards down, that's a mechanic that wasn't in the original game. Are these just additional cards that function differently, or are you actually changing the rules for the game? Uh, it, it's changing the rules in, in kind of a, a minor way. In that, uh, in that, uh, um, the, I think I think the write up I gave for these was uh, a paragraph. Uh, the The current implementation is that when you roll. Uh, three heal results, uh, uh, heart results. You get to reveal a card, um, and the well, you actually get to draw a card, and then you can play it at any time. And some of them are like keep cards in the base game, and some of them are play and discard. It found it, I found that that made a really good palette for uh, expanding on the personality or, or creating the personality for these monsters. Uh, there was a um, uh, I, I, I really feel like uh, it made it. I was able to make it so that uh, um, Alienoid and, and uh, Gigazor and Mecha Dragon all feel different and and uh, and, and and have uh, cards which uh, sort of entertain and uh, and uh, entice players to act in particular ways. So is this analogous to leveling up your character? Yeah, uh, revealing cards is definitely analog. It, it, it is analogous to leveling up your character, um, because uh, that is, uh, if I've played a, a kind of long game and I've revealed five of my powers, uh, my cards, uh, then I'm going to um, be in general more powerful than somebody's only general leveled up three. Now that person may have more victory points or may have got purchased more cards, so it's really not a flat up power thing. But my personality of my character, the personality of my character, is beginning to shine through then. So, Richard, it sounds like you did a bit of almost wandering around um, in creating this expansion before you found the 
the route that got you where you wanted to go. Um, can you tell us about some of the earlier incarnations and why sure. you didn't go with them? Sure. Uh, before I had framed the problem um, and uh, and was then then able to uh, come up with a solution, which I think works pretty well, um, I. I played around with making it so that uh, one. I, I began off by making it so that ones triggered your your special power, and so you were dealt a card, and on two ones you would get a, a minor ability, on three ones you got a disadvantage, and on four ones you got like an uber ability, and uh, and and so what I was aiming for there was that uh, uh, was this 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 role that was not particularly used before, ones are uh, uh, kind of a, a bad role in the original game, um, um, that, that, uh, that you were getting, you were getting this, this other thing going on. And, and it, 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 there were a lot of really interesting things with the play that that introduced. Uh, one of the things I liked best about it was that the three ones giving you a disadvantage um, made it so that there were all sorts of Interesting press your luck situations. If I had three ones, do I want to go for four ones, uh, and, and, uh, and my Uber, or do I want to reroll those three ones because I'm going to get a disadvantage? And if I've got two ones and I've got kind of my minor ability going, do I want to roll the rest of them and risk rolling that third one? That was a, uh, uh, rolling something bad like that. The only way that exists in the original game is when I, I'm rolling an attack and end up in Tokyo and I don't want to. Um, very seldom do people have the option of rerolling and saying, "I'm just not going to reroll because I don't want to. I don't want to have something bad happen." But with these this ones set up, it did happen, uh, and that was kind of cool. There were some drawbacks to that, though, obviously, or else that would be the expansion. Yes, the drawbacks. You began out with complexity because everybody had these ones, and, uh, and, you, and you you did. You certainly felt like you had to read everyone's card. You you absolutely had to. And uh, and then the other thing was that it did f feel like right up front your uh, strategy was being guided. Like uh, um, like if your if your creature was was uh, was good at collecting energy, then that's kind of what you wanted to do. And and I would offer it did a it did another thing that was bad for the game, which is that by taking this role that no one used um, and making something uh, interesting or decent happening with it, it I, I think it. It made the games closer, or at least certainly you didn't get as hosed from bad luck as you were before, which I don't think is necessarily positive. Yeah, I think it took me a little while to appreciate that, um, but but the ones being bad rolls was important uh, to the game. Twos, you know, people love rolling threes, uh, but twos really aren't that much worse than threes, but ones are really, really much, much worse. I was going to ask, is it necessarily a good thing to only have to choose between positives? Yeah, uh, I mean, that was somewhat mitigated by the fact that there was this booby roll of having, this booby trap of having uh, um, uh Three ones, uh, but uh, but it was it was kind of it, it kind of felt like something important had been removed from the game. Why do you think that is? Like, why do you think having a role that's just bad, having something that can come up on your die that's not negative, it's not a penalty, but it's just not that good. Why do you think that's an important part of the balance? It's not an important part of balance. It's an important part of unbalance. You don't, you don't want it to be too balanced. People aren't, uh, you, you, uh, yeah, I mean, you, we, we could, we could auction off your rolls every time, uh, t to, uh, add even less luck to it. But, but the eggs, the swings and luck are pretty good.
Yeah, uh, if, if if all the rules are balanced, then the game is the game isn't necessarily less interesting uh, because because um, healing and, and attack and energy might all in some sense be balanced, but they're really different. Uh, but but having this, uh, I think there's a lot of texture added by having it. So the victory points have this the scale, and some of the rules just were. Well, if I've got to take ones, then I take ones. And also, uh, uh, actually, it tied in a lot of the uh, cards in the original game sort of played off of the ones being bad, and uh, and those would have had to be changed also. Uh, um, uh, so it just felt like there was a dimension missing from the game, like everything was a little too much the same. Um, uh, from from uh, that first expansion, uh, I went to... Uh, uh, using special dice for each character, and uh, each person would get an getting an extra die was uh, was a really interesting. And I played many different versions of this. Uh, one of the things which was really nice there is that is that giving per- a person a customized die is 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 uh, cool. It's very sexy. People people liked that. Um, but uh, one of the disadv- one of the difficulties with it is that uh, is that you you're just going to get one die. Uh, the game is built on combinations, uh, and and making combinations with one die is is is, is a bit of a challenge. Um, and and so and so uh, I was able to add a lot of texture, a lot of, a lot of interest to this die by giving you a little uh, giving you um, each person would have had a disadvantage and a a power. And some sort of wild results like uh, energy or healing, but then they also had an upgrade roll. Uh, and when they would roll the upgrade, they would flip their card over, and then they would have a static ability. That is an ability that's always with them, so they would sort of uh, get this permanent ability. Um, and then they would also uh, uh, get a couple extra powers uh, on their die. And so then, then you got this leveling up ability thing, and uh, and and you 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 uh, and. Uh, but but again, it had uh, a, a lot of the same problems that I had before. That is, the game began out more complicated, and people were definitely even more guided than they were before. Because because before, if you didn't roll ones, you weren't being guided. Here, you are always rolling your special die, uh, and and so some characters are always bringing a little bit of extra something to the table. So you just handed me a stack of uh, very interesting looking cards and. Uh, they're different from what I remember from King of Tokyo because they're each labeled with a character. So what you're holding is is uh, cards from the my final expansion uh, uh, concept, which is is uh, cards that are that uh, each person gets eight cards, which are dedicated to their character. Shuffle them up, and they get revealed at certain points in the game. Um, and uh, one of the things I think they do is they really uh, um, uh, paint the personality of the character. So I give you Alienoid in particular because I think that that, that one, uh, the personality really shines through. Yeah, you gave me Alienoid and Cyber Bunny. Yeah, those are my two favorites. So Cyber Bunny, as far as I can tell, is a shopper. Cyber Bunny is a shopper. Cyber Bunny... Um, gets a lot of energy and, and has a lot of different ways to use that energy. Yeah, there's a card here that makes um, cards cost one less, a bunch of cards that you can get additional energy, um, one that lets you take no damage. So I assume there is an assortment. They're not all yeah. in, in order, theme. Yeah, in, each character in order to, uh, because I didn't want the, the character to completely guide you, uh, the issue of, 
of uh, being guided by your characters to what your strategy is. Um, uh, I wanted to make it so that the decks had a tendency in a particular direction, but everybody's got a little bit of energy creation. Everybody's got a little bit of damage avoidance. Uh, um, and that way, if you reveal a, a few cards during the game, you may only have a slight bias in a particular direction. So it looks like Alienoid is um, the character that's good at turning what would be a disadvantage into an advantage. So um, he's got each life you lost on the current turn. You can discard to gain an energy for each of those. You can purchase shoddy tech. Alienoid, uh, I, I like going for the uh, to, to to understand the personality that uh, that is coming out with Alienoid. Um, I think you, you've got to read the the, the titles. Um, so, for example, uh, uh, Superior Alien Technology uh, allows you to buy cards at half price by putting a shoddy tech on them, and then those shoddy cards may go away anytime you use them. And Precision Field Support allows you to flip cards up from the middle until you flip up a keep card of a certain price, and then you get to keep it. So it's uh, not actually very precise. Um, and uh, funny looking but dangerous uh, uh, allows you to do damage to all the players when you uh, 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 score some victory points. And so you get this sort of uh, goofy, sort of everything's breaking. Uh, um, oh, oh, uh, soup, um, oh uh, where is his gun? He's got some sort of massive gun. Uh, anyway, he's got he's got a gun which uh, which. Uh, um, blows up in his face half the time, um, and so I'm, I'm sort of going for uh, for a cartoon. Oh, here is exotic arms, um, and uh, with exotic arms, uh, you can put as many energies you like on the card, and you have to roll at least that many claws, or you suffer that much damage. But if you do roll that many claws, then you do that much extra damage, and you get your energy back. Uh, the biggest shopping card for uh, for uh, Cyber Bunny, of course, is. Uh, he who dies with the most toys wins, uh, which is I you like get a victory title. point uh, each time you purchase a keep card, um, sort of giving giving Cyber Bunny uh, its natural uh, uh, alternative victory way uh, uh, approach. Um, so uh, uh, with Kraken, uh, explored, uh, uh, got a lot of healing, but also has got some sort of exotic attack powers, uh, trying to get the Cthulhu uh, nature. So there's like a, a sunken temple and a terror of the deep uh, cultists. Wait, wait. Kraken gets cultists? Kraken does get cultists. Okay, Kraken is my new favorite. I've always wanted a cult. Uh, um, you don't have one? Um, and uh, uh, king of, the, the king um, uh, is, has a bunch of cards which, which uh, tie into King of Tokyo. Uh, that is, uh, ties into taking Tokyo. So uh, uh, the king has uh, cards which allows him to take Tokyo and also retreat from Tokyo without taking any damage. So wait, are you saying so? The name of the game is King of Tokyo, and the king has all these cards that let him take Tokyo. Isn't the king the best then? Well, the king, the king's name is is somewhat justified there because uh, he's good at taking Tokyo. Is he the best? Well, taking Tokyo is not always the best thing. Uh, but uh, an example of the the sort of uh, flavor which I tried to get with it is uh, Monkey Rush, uh, which is an instant you play, and when somebody else takes Tokyo, you can play it, and you take Tokyo instead. So uh, that is is a, a sort of a surprising thing that now can come up in the game where I think I'm taking Tokyo and suddenly the king the king is there instead. And then the other side of that is Simpian Scam Simeon Scamper, which uh, allows uh, him to retreat from Tokyo without taking any damage. So would you say that the king is the um, character that utilizes 
the element of surprise most? Um, no, each of them have some surprise cards like that, but uh, that, that I think is probably my favorite surprise card. <laughs> so is surprise important to the strategy, or is it just fun? Well, it is, it is one thing that I really liked with the cards we added. Uh, one thing uh, I look for in games is, is, is to get some hidden information, uh, um, that is information which one player knows and the others don't know and probably want to know. Um, sort of like in poker. Um, you can have uh, perfectly good games with, with no hidden information of this type, but I, I tend to like it. And, uh, and, and uh, It also helps preserve uh, one of the original goals was try to attempt to keep your strategy off the rails. And so by not knowing what the other players have, even though they have it, um, it, it does Reinforces add a little extra element of to that. To be adaptable. Right. Um, yeah, it's interesting. And then there was a there was a, uh, another aspect of the early expansions which did not follow through into the current one. That what um, was that? that? That that was extra cards to the play deck. Yeah, uh, we 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 have a whole bunch of extra cards, and they seem natural to do uh, th- because they're they're so easy to uh, come up with, uh, uh, and and they can be so interesting. Um, the original game came with you know, something like 60 cards, like uh, Extra Head, where you get to roll an extra die. Um, and, I remember uh, Extra Head. That was one of my favorites. And and so we, we explored that space further by coming up with a lot of extra cards, which I imagine will be published at some point or another, just not in the first expansion. Those are sort of independent in a lot of ways. Um, they did add a little complexity and a little cost to the expansion, which are both considerations. But um, in general, you'll probably or almost definitely see those in, in future expansions. So that those were some of the non-wasted hours. No hours wasted when you're learning about a game. Yeah. Um, I so I, I think one, one of the important things about this process is like uh, Richard has been mentioning several times over and over again, it was the, it, 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 it was at the point when he was clearly able to define his goals um, that that things started to to move uh, faster to where they were, and 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 I guess the goals in the beginning might have been a little bit clear, but then especially what the cons were of achieving those goals, and so uh, literally just writing them down uh, helped guide a lot. I mean, so if you're going to do an expansion, or it doesn't even have to be an expansion. Let's say you have a game and it's not quite right, and you want to change it in some way, it, it may very well behoove you to specifically write down what your goals are for the change and then uh, and then what the specific cons are of those changes especially after a play test or two because that that will that, that will help guide you as opposed to taking a, a completely random walk and, and hoping you arrive at a better place or uh, picking something purely based on flavor and not not clearly understanding what what you're doing yeah it, it... Another really important uh, aspect of this uh, this uh, journey is uh, having uh, having a, a really good set of playtesters. Um, there were several times when when I became reasonably satisfied with what I had and sent it sent what I had to uh, our French partners, and they they play tested it. And uh, I'm really happy that uh, that uh, they came back. Uh, with the feedback they 
they came back with, which was often not as good as I'd hoped it was, um, but it made me face some of the problems, which uh, I, I, I guess underneath I suspected were there. But uh, but having 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 it come come out sort of again and again, this game feels a little slower, a little more complicated, not as many interesting choices. Um, and there were even some some uh, feedback that they gave me, which uh, at first I, I completely didn't agree with, but later later decided I actually did agree with it, um, and. Uh, uh, so having 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 uh, and and of course I have my own playtest groups. So having backup playtest groups that are uh, are uh, um, analytic and uh, and and uh, well and more independent too. And, because yeah. um, when you're when you're sitting with your playtest group, the way you play and the way you even describe things certainly influences how the people around you play. Yeah. So a, a completely independent playtest group. If you can manage it, not everyone is, has the luxury of that, but if you can manage a completely independent playtest group, they will often give you extremely valuable feedback. So defining and writing down your goals was an important step. Um, the thing about uh, des- defining and writing down your goals, um, there's a little more to it than that. In that, in that at the beginning, I defined and I wrote down that my goal was to give each of the monsters personalities. Um, and make it, and I, and I, I, I sold the publisher on it. Everybody agreed that that was what was most called for, most obvious. Uh, what, what later came out was that, 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 the consequences of that I hadn't foreseen, which was the narrowing of, uh, the strategy and the, the funneling of people in a, in a, in a particular direction and the, and the, and the, and the arc got worse. Yeah, that's the cons part. Once, right? So, so it's it's, but but it it it. it I don't I don't know that. Like like now in retrospect, I can write that down ahead. Of, I can write that down and say I want to do that. But but next time it's going to be some other objective I have, which is I want to do X to this game, and I'm going to work at it, and it's going to kind of be dissatisfying, be dissatisfying, and it's not going to be after until I go through a similar sort of journey until I realize well the problem is is that. Instead of the game arc going wonky, it's that people are memorizing too much or something like that. And, right. and yeah, no, I, that's why I said after after a playtest or two, um, it, it seems like that that that's the time when you write, you know, when you can actually write down what the what the cons are. Yeah. Of, of what of what what you're going after. But ultimately, the cons didn't change what your original goal was, did they? I mean, you've still given the monsters personality; they just changed how you're approaching it. Yeah. Um, uh, at, at, for, there was a point where I was actually at, at in despair, so to speak. I was at dark at, night at, of the soul. I was, I was on my my last, uh, my last rung. Did um, that lead you to question whether the goal was correct? It did. It did. Uh, um, and the reason was is because is because uh, I, I you know I looked at it and said, look, we want to give these monsters personalities. That means some monsters are going to be better at say shopping than other monsters. That means that's going to guide their strategy. That means it's going to be a worse game, um, and and uh, um, and this and and I do think that that actually there is some sacrifice to the flexibility with the expansion. I just think it's uh, it's been done in a way that sort of mitigates that concern, and that that the the overall pros are better than the cons. I think we've done the goal, which is I think that the expansion uh, has. Uh, the first order goal, which is the expansion, I do not believe has made the game worse. 
for your goals, you know, when you say, okay, I want to add personality to the monsters, I mean, another way to think of it is, uh, as opposed to just saying you don't want to make the game worse, which hopefully was followed, um, you know, you think about what are the, what are the essential core, what, what makes the game good now? I mean, what do you like best about the game? What are the core values of it? And so like that, that's, um, that's an interesting thing to, to express an interesting thing to think about right in the beginning because some games, if the game is a little more complex, the game becomes more complex, the game becomes longer, um, it doesn't matter because, uh, you know, if I'm playing a four-hour game already with a 60-page rule book, you know, what's another 10 pages? It's not going to drive away a customer because they're already a very special kind of person to begin with. Um, but, you know, that wasn't King of Tokyo. King of Tokyo is a very light game. There's a lot of randomness in it. For instance, the ones, uh, you know, being useful, the elimination of bad roles for a lot of games, that's not that big a deal. For King of Tokyo, it was a bigger deal because, um, because it's, it's, uh, it's, it's randomness was a key element, uh, to it. It's, uh, it, the, instability of this the 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 strategy your strategy not being on rails necessarily from the beginning again is one of the most interesting parts uh of king of tokyo and so um so for for a game like dominion if you became even more on the rails in the beginning than you are of dominion it, it may it wouldn't have been as bad a thing as it was for king of tokyo so what you're saying is in addition to defining um what you want to change or enhance about the game, it's just as important to define what you don't want to lose. Oh, right. A list of what you don't want to lose probably is is yeah. really, really important. Did you do that, Richard? I did not. Ah. And uh, I don't know if I would have, if somebody told me to make a list of what I don't want to lose, I don't know that I would have been able to figure out what I needed, but it certainly would have been good to try. Yeah, well, and I think you certainly would have put down, you wouldn't have wanted to change the, I mean, the amount of randomness is something that you've always said you liked about King of Tokyo. It, it, it is true, yeah. And not that not that either of us would have written it down, but we did actually express many times the coolness of adjusting your, your strategy based upon your role or on what other players are doing. Yeah. To take that extra step to recognizing it and putting it down as a as a do not change, I don't know that that would have happened. I think the randomness would have you, you would have put that down. I would have, uh, although yeah, there was there was a lot of like like even late in the game, uh, one of the one of the variations that was coming up was that you would reveal one of these cards when you had a roll you didn't like. You finish your roll, you don't like it, reveal a card. And there were a lot of players who really liked that because it means basically your rolls can't, you can't be too hosed by your rolls because if you roll a bad roll, just reveal one of your powers. But that, you know, the reason, one of the reasons why bad rolls is good is, is that, is that if I'm way behind, uh, I have something to hope for on my opponent's turn. If they're going to score between, five and ten points uh utility points every turn then then and i'm 20 points behind they're going to get to 100 before me uh, uh and and but but if they can score zero or go backwards then then that's good for me so let's say i have a board game idea what's the first step to actually getting it made it sounds like make a version down. of it and play it a million times and with other people Right, but it sounds like there are, to even get that far, you there are things that you need to sit down and define for yourself. It sounds like otherwise you can end up going in a lot of different directions. Well, but but our, I mean, I think a lot of the things we're talking about are more for 
expansions or for changing your game. Like once you decide you change it, you need to change it in a specific way. I mean, the the proposition was that you, you know, you said, I want to change the game in this specific way. Here's my goal. Now, you, you, I guess you could set out with a goal right in the beginning. Uh, but I don't, I guess I don't, probably most people don't make board games that way. But I would assume that the, in the process of making it, those changes happen fairly frequently. Right? Where you're like, it's not enough. Um, I don't feel like there's enough randomness. It's not fun. Or there's no surprises in it. It's too on rails. Where you have that sort of direction change that you're also talking about for the expansion. Or am I wrong? Does it just, like, this is what I'm making? I don't know. Richard's the master. You have to ask him. But I've seen him create a lot of things. And usually, from what I can tell, and Richard, you should you should speak more about this, but it's usually like you, you just have some random idea of what might be cool in a game, and then you make the game, and then and then start thinking. Uh, it's true. I, I think uh, different, different game designers have all sorts of different styles. Um, mine is to prototype rapidly, uh, and oftentimes by the time I've finished making my prototype, I don't even want to play it anymore. I already know some of the problems. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I get, I get an idea. Uh, I try to get something which is playable. Um, and I will absolutely never show it to a publisher until I play tested the Dickens out of it. Uh, um, I, I, and, uh, uh, it has to be something which, uh, and, and, and part of that process is getting an idea of what the, uh, flavor of the game is ultimately going to be, even if you don't choose the final flavor, get some placeholder art in there so that people aren't just looking at walls of text. Um, and, uh, uh, and, uh, and, 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 and play testing a lot. And I, I'd say the, the, the thing which, uh, most beginning designers struggle with the most, what, what, uh, what I think they should struggle with the most, what I, I struggle with, although I have uh, an easier and easier time with it, is losing mechanics which aren't pulling their weight. Like, uh, um, uh, there's people, it, it's, it's, it's amazing how, how, Often you'll be playtesting uh, uh, somebody's game, and there'll be these mechanics which uh, are just seem superfluous. Like they take you, it t- they take the person five minutes to explain to you, and the situation hardly ever comes up, right? And so those those mechanics are ripe to get rid of, like 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 to trim the rules down. But they don't want to get them because that's part of the way they conceive the game or something like that. And and uh, and so and so learning what to trim from your game is is is, is really really important. I want to go back a moment to something you said earlier, though, when you were talking about um, putting at least placeholder art in there so your playtesters have something to at least look at, um, which raises two interesting questions for me, one of which is how do you find and identify good playtesters? Like, how do you get a playtest group? And number two, what do you need to do for them in order to make the game uh, both play testable and fun to play test. Well, a, a, certainly uh, play testers with a variety of different uh, play styles are, are, are important, like having having some people who play very casually and socially uh, is good and, and having people who are very analytic and, and, and play very much to win 
Um, uh, and, and that'll vary depending on the game. Sometimes you're just doing a game which is meant for the party crowd. I personally like to make it so if it's like a party game, I still want to make it so that the hardcore analysts can still play, and that if it's an analytic game, that the uh, that the uh, more casual players can play. But uh, but other people will 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 want to focus their playtest groups more. What what I think I think you uh, as far as uh, what to give them, um, I like to make sure that that the uh the game has enough uh art and color that that it doesn't look like a final product because that's way too much work and and I'm not an artist uh but but that uh that is sort of easy to imagine it being a final product that uh, that you can see where the pictures will go um uh, and so in, in front of us we got a bunch of the the the, the cards I've I've done I've done for example I've gone to the effort to you know make the make the titles of the cards big and and uh, make sure that the 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 font and the in the uh, in the in the effects are not too small that there's a uh, at, at the minimum a picture of the character on the card which takes up a lot of the card I wouldn't have to make it that big but I want to convey you know the flavor of the card to the to the to the player. Um, and, and on the dice, I've actually got, you know, stickers with little pictures of the characters and little skulls and crossbones and things like that. Um, I think that extra step is, is really important for your playtesters, um, uh, even if your playtesters are, are professional, right? And, uh, and, and there's very good for the, for the publisher, even if they're very good at looking at other things. Uh, uh, um, you will occasionally find some people who can, can see beyond that, but, uh, but, uh, but it's pretty rare, and I wouldn't risk it. Uh, and and it, you know, it's like the fact that I enjoy playing the game with this sort of stuff uh, uh, indicates that even with the length of time I've been in the industry and a lot of the amount of time that I've uh, spent on it, that it still has some effect on me. So, is it that it makes it easier for people to engage with the game conceptually? Uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of different functions of making it more graphically coherent to start with uh, uh i'd say one of the uh thing one of the things is 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 just that uh, uh when you read for instance putting pictures on cards one of the functions of that is that um if you've got a bunch of text and you're looking at the card from across the table you will find yourself always looking at that card. What does this say again? What does this say again? But if it's got a picture of an octopus on it, and there's only one card with a picture of an octopus, then you say, what's that octopus card? And you read it, and then afterwards you'll be looking, oh, that's that octopus card. I recognize that. Uh, um, and, and, and so that uh, graphic cue really helps people play. Just had a good comment from Javier, our audio director, who is also a designer, um, about how important it is to be willing to give your game prototype to people to play and how a lot of people tend to freeze up right before that point and keep iterating because they aren't they don't think that the game is ready to be played and he said yeah. Richard, you're very good at being able to say okay i know what's wrong with this game but yeah, let's just play it right and it's very very useful uh at the earliest step possible getting people to sit down and play so oftentimes my first playtest sessions are 10 minutes, 15 minutes long. And there's a lot of things which I get out of those sessions, but uh, just sort of seeing what people do, you know, how they hold their hands, how they how the, how they play their cards, what they begin looking for based on the framework of the game uh, really helps me uh, uh, 
design what I call the game kinesthetics, what, what people feel like they should be doing with the components. Like they, they might want to play their cards in a particular way or at the end of the turn draw a card or, you know, whatever. Uh, there's, there's, uh, oftentimes a lot of things which I, I didn't really anticipate, but when I give people the framework of how to play, they begin playing and I watch what they do and, and, and get a lot of ideas for, for, uh, what the natural way to develop is. So for you, that early playtesting is analogous to um, user research in video games where we get the game out in an early form in front of people and just watch what they do with it. Well, it, it's actually, no, it's even before that. It's just getting a first playable even internally for a video game. Um, right, be- but it sounds like... Yeah, it's like you like there's another, there's this whole step before... Um, before you get it out in front of players that where it's just even internal to the designers, even just yourself. I mean, just making a, a version that you can play with video playable. games. It's, it, you know, you can, you can play one player games a lot, which you, you can't so much with board games, but just getting it up even for your, your internal set of designers. Don't, don't, don't keep designing. And I think Javier was saying this, uh, just, just, you know, you have to play early at some point before you, design it to the point where you can put it out too. And then, um, but once you get it to that play test group, it sounds like there's a certain aesthetic of um, almost hands-offness of watching how they play it rather than telling them how to play it. Uh, it, it, it depends, uh, at various stages. Like, if, if the game, if it's early enough, I'll be telling them how to play because, uh, there's a lot of framework there which it may not be there and, and, uh, and uh, I will be guiding them more because I'll know I'll put that in. Um, but, uh, but certainly once it's at a stage where, um, once it's at a stage where I think it's it's in the ballpark of finished, um, I, I will give people less guidance, and ultimately I will uh, try to give it to players where I'm not you know I'm not part of the playtest group, uh, and I will either observe or get the feedback from somebody I trust as to how this uh, how this uh, how how it went down, um, uh, because that that's how you figure out where the points of confusion are that are that, that you have a natural blind side to blind side. It- and it's a lot harder for a board game. For a video game, you can, as long as the game's not buggy, uh, too buggy to play, you can hand it to someone else and they can kind of tool around in 99% of games. They can figure it out without you explaining it to them. Uh, and th- that's completely not the case with a board game. With a board game, if Richard designs a game, he has to be the one to tell people to play. Some people learn games from rules, but... Rules are hard to write, and that and very few people end up playing games in practice that way. So he has to tell someone, and even if he steps back, he told someone how to play the rules. Then they're going to tell someone else how to play. So he he's you know uh, it's very rare to be more than one step away removed from being the person that's actually explaining the game, which is a it's a big drawback for board games. So how do you tell the difference between um, the game just not being ready to hand out and that sort of um, prototyping stage fright? Well, uh, for prototyping stage fright, I, I, first of all, uh, this, 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 you, you shouldn't have stage fright to put it in front of your closest playtesters. That should just not, you know, you should just uh, swallow it and realize you're showing them trash half the time uh, and getting their feedback. Um, as far as sending it to a broader audience where, where you're uh, t- sending it to independent groups and, and so forth, there it's just a matter of experience. You, you, you really uh, have, to, have to have reached a place with your own uh, more tight group of playtesters 
um, you have to reach a place where you where you feel like this is this is pretty much complete, except for tweaking, you know, uh, balancing the powers of the cards. But it's it's sort of a thing as at the stage where you may have to balance the balance of the cards, balance the powers of the cards, but you don't have to figure change how the cards are played, um, and. Uh, and it's really, it's really this 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 idea of of, of the independent playtest group is is really it's it's hard to overemphasize that, um, because and 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 to illustrate that is is when you sit down and this this I've seen a lot of times with uh, with beginning game designers they will have games which play very well with their friends, but but uh, when they play when when it's independently tested it does absolutely terrible and and the reason why that sort of thing can happen is because uh sort of an, an illustration of how that might happen is is if you've got a game where where you can be uh you can attack or be defensive and and the game works wonderfully as long as one person at least is attacking then if the designer sits down and they're always attacking because that's what they like to do, and they know the game works there. Then, then their games are always going to be good. But then, when they send it to some independent group and everybody plays defensive, the game just doesn't work. It sucks, right? And they and and it may be an easy fix. They just you know it's like but but unless the playtester, unless the designer gets that feedback, uh, they may never put in something which encourages the behavior which makes the game fun. So how do you know when it's ready to send to a publisher? Well, if you've got a if 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 your playtest group is enjoying it, and you can get a a, a uh, an independent playtest group to enjoy it, you've probably got something which some people are going to like, um, and uh, and then then it's a matter of deciding what uh, you know what you want to do with it. And there's all sorts of different avenues for people these days. Um, uh, at the Sending it to a publisher is certainly uh, one of the easier things to do with it. It's going to be uh, something which is is it's it's hard to actually get published. It's it's hard to get a game published because there's a lot of games out there. Um, uh, but but if you chose to do that, uh, then then uh, I would submit the sort of game which you have gotten an independent playtest group to to enjoy, um, and. And I would uh, write to the publisher uh, and, and ask them what their submission policies are. And uh, usually they will either not accept s submissions, that's often the case, or they will only accept submissions if you have an agent, that's sometimes the case, or they will be happy to accept it provided you give them a, uh, um, a small description of the game uh, so that uh, so they, they can see if they're just in the ballpark of interested uh, uh before you send it in, uh, you never send your prototype to them cold. You always have to uh, establish that beforehand. Uh, uh, get them saying to say yes, we will look at your game. So what you're saying is, board game publishers don't really have a slush pile in the same sense that book publishers do. Uh, a slush pile is is where cold submissions go. Yeah, a slush pile is just you get tons and tons of submissions. You go through and find the ones that are potentially. Yeah, uh, I think most of the t I, I think that's pretty rare in in board games. Board games, uh, you either yeah, you either have to have a, 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 a an agent or or get somebody to say yes, we will take it. Uh, um, we will take a look. Um, 
there's, I mean, these days with, in, with, with sort of self-publishing, there's a lot of tools there by which you can uh, um, uh, uh, get get easy uh, PDF versions of your game out. You can take it to uh, conventions and, uh, and and share a booth with somebody and peddle uh, a few hundred copies of it that you've made yourself. Um, I, I think that's, you know, like if you enjoy that, that's a lot of work. Uh, it can be a lot of fun. Um, uh, then, then you can go ahead and do that. If I were starting out, I would consider doing that, but my goal would be to make sure that the game is really ironed out and to make it so that, that, that real publishers wouldn't be afraid to look at it because, I mean, there is always the issue when, when you, uh, when uh, uh, something in publishers' minds, one of the reasons why they don't want to look at everybody's games is because if they just take uh, everybody's games, then they're going to be sued because they come up with games with similar themes or, or something like that. And, uh, and, and if you've actually published your game, um, uh, self-published it, then, then they're not going to be afraid to look at it because it's sort of in the public domain. So, assuming that a publisher is willing to take a look at your game, and assuming that, I assume the next step is they say yes or no, like we're actually going to try and put this thing together, or no, we're not interested, what's the next step for you as the designer at that point? What does the publisher do versus what the, what does the designer do? Um, uh, that, well, that varies from publisher to publisher, uh, but uh, but the publisher... Uh, tends to have a lot of experience as to what their audience will want and what sort of changes can be made to the game to optimize for that audience. Um, sometimes those are changes which the designer will be uncomfortable with. Uh, I uh, encourage designers to be open-minded about it because oftentimes the publishers, uh, just like my playtest group, which gave me feedback which uh, I didn't at first agree with, uh, publishers often give me feedback which I don't at first agree with doesn't mean your playtesters and your publishers are always right. It just means you should keep an open mind. Um, and uh, um, and so typically with me, there's a back-and-forth process because usually the flavor I've chosen for the game can be at least tweaked and and often recast completely to uh, to be a flavor that they want. Um, and, uh, and, and they'll typically have some feedback as to what mechanics didn't work for them, uh, um, and uh, and so and so there is often some development work after that that you do with the publisher. I, I encourage you to try to make the publisher uh, into a partner in this venture, where where uh, uh, they're trying to optimize it for for an audience which you don't know as well. So, are the sort of um, flavor recastings are they often dramatic? Does it often happen that you say, okay, I um, here's a game about gophers, and they're like, all right, let's make it a racing game. Yeah, uh, yes, it's often dramatic. Uh, um, it depends. It, it, the how, how dramatic it is is limited only by the imagination of your publishers, and some of these guys have a really good imagination. Um, uh, and 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 I, I mean, even though I encourage you to 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 work with them, um, uh, I, I have definitely uh, uh, said no. This this just won't work. I don't want to work. I don't want to go in this direction. And and uh, and either put my foot down and have them change change their tune or go on to a different publisher. Uh, but uh, but but uh, oftentimes they've got really good ideas and uh, and uh, and they they know a lot again about their audience and uh, what sort of things they'd be looking for. One 
worry people have. Uh, people are often very worried about uh, their ideas getting stolen. Um, this is this is something which I, I, I would tend not to worry too much about in uh, in the game industry. Um, it's a uh, first of all, your ideas are not that good. And second of all, if they were, the publishers aren't smart enough to want to steal them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> ideas are cheap, right? It's it's true. Uh, there there are people who are so proprietary about their ideas; they want to get them trademarked and 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 make sure people sign non disclosures and so forth and so on. Um, uh, I think you're going to uh, serve yourself a lot better if you if you view yourself more. Um, if, if you have more respect in your ability to come up with new ideas if the first ones don't work or you perceive them as being stolen. But in, in general, there isn't much theft of, of concepts in the, in the game industry because the game industry is one which people are in because they love the game industry. They do not get into it for money in general. Uh, they get into it because they love games and, and they do, and, 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 and those are not people are if if anything they're going to be trying to get their own game ideas uh published they're not going to be uh and and if they look at yours they're not going to say oh I want this idea and to publish it themselves they've either got game ideas or they're looking for great ones to publish and uh and so uh, uh it's 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 pretty rare so um once you get the game to the publisher and the publisher decides that they want to go ahead with it um in addition to I guess having the mindset of viewing the publisher as a partner, are there any additional steps, or does it does the publisher basically take it from there, or are there additional things that, as the designer, you need to drive or push them? That that'll vary a lot from publisher to publisher. Uh, um, the it depends what they want done with it, but uh, but I think uh, if you've submitted um, a prototype which is close to the final product and they like the final flavor. Then, then, uh, then pretty much it's in their, it's in their camp and they will make some suggestions and you will, uh, uh, be well advised to take them seriously. Um, and they will probably make suggestions. They will probably ask for some art direction, like they'll give you some different ideas of, uh, style that they're planning to take, but they may not. They may just go their own direction. Um, but just follow, follow your publisher's instructions upon acceptance. I guess. <laughs> yeah, that, that's 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 true. Yeah, absolutely. Um, your your um, um, one thing uh, I look for from my publishers. I really like my publisher to play test the game independently. Um, uh, I I am sort of uh, terrified of uh, of the publisher. Um, taking my game, saying this is brilliant, and publishing it verbatim. I really want an editor to look at it, and uh, and I want uh, an editor who knows games to look at it, um, because uh, um, because uh, I have not done the technical. You know, I've I've written it so that you can understand the rules, but I'm not uh, sort of a, 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 the person to be writing the final copy for the rules and, and doing the final uh, layout for the. As an art. editor, you'll get no argument from me there. I mean. Everybody should have an editor look at everything they write, including editors when they write stuff of their own. But so that's been a great glimpse into what happens between you know step number one, have an idea, and step number ten, profit. Um, oh so yeah. A lot of times <laughs> those steps are kind of fuzzy um, for a lot of people. So thank you for that glimpse into it, and uh, to our listeners, if you you know are going ahead and trying to create your own game and get it published, 
you know, please let us know if it does get published. It's looking for good new games. Yeah, uh, uh, a lot of these questions can be answered in uh, the Game Inventors Guidebook by uh, Brian Tinsman. It's a, it's a, uh, a really good look at the industry and, uh, and gives a lot of good advice for people who are starting out. Thanks for that look into the process of getting a game published. And that's all for tonight, so we will be back soon to talk to you. Um, as always, I'm your host, Jessica Price, and wish you a good night. Uh, I guess I'll also wish you a good night. That's the time of the podcast when I do that, right? Yes. All right, good night. And that's the way it is. Good night. (laughs) 